This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm with Josh Bosset to examine the communal life and stability found in the sacrificial altar. Yes, here we are again, back back looking at the Mishkan. Today, we're going to be examining uh, Exodus 27 in conjunction with Day 3 of Creation. Um, so, before we go any further, Brent, let's just go ahead and read that third day of creation. What's going on there? Yeah, this is, I guess this is the one that kind of feels a little more normal. Like, day two, it's like, what do you mean separate water from what? Because we don't, mm-hmm. we don't think of the waters above us in that same way. And it's like, it sounds like mm-hmm. there's just this pool of liquid floating above. But then day three, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Water from land. But, but then that is kind of how they thought of it. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. But it's just, it's a, it seems like a weird concept to us. Whereas yeah. it's like, it's easy for us to visualize the separation of land from water, I think. Yeah, and you know, I, that's probably just part of the, like, demystification of being alive in the modern age is like, you know. Yeah. If you're a pre, uh, you know, pre-modern person, like, just seeing water come out of the sky, like, that's, that's trippy. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I know the first time I saw snow, like that felt like such a like cr- like just it weirdly mind blowing. Just like this is this is insane. This just comes out of the sky. What the heck? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. How's it do that? <laughs> One more challenge in the attempt to uh, get our minds into the minds of those who uh, first heard these stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation. Plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. I feel like this keeps happening every day, but the the way this is presented is, is, um, like, before we get into dissecting it, there's a couple features in here that are pretty different from the previous days uh, that we've been through. We, We first, we have two different like kind of mode moments where God steps in and gives a a divine creative command. And we also have two moments where God says it was good. Um, and on the, like on top of that, God gives like some pretty detailed, uh, information or command or explanation of how plants work. Like that's, that's a pretty extended little bit of God talking, uh, certainly compared to the previous days. Um, so yeah, we should keep that in mind when we're looking through this and see like why that might, why that might be, why, why break this perfectly good pattern in these subtle ways? Well, there's, there's like the exact repetition of that second part of it as well. Whereas before Mm -hmm. it's like God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that it was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He called it day and night, you know, like if you were a if you were a modern writer who could uh and and you were writing this yourself you could simplify that certainly but there's not anything that's particularly repetitious 
Um, mm -hmm. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault, separated the water under the vault from the water above it. Like there's just some mm -hmm. clarifying language happening there. And then even, even in the first part of this day three, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place. Let dry ground appear. God called it land, gathered waters. He called seas. It's, it's not, it doesn't feel repetitious, but then we have this almost exact, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees in the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it isn't, it isn't an exact copy and paste, right? but it says the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. So it's like, it's not quite. It's it's even more repetitious than it could have been if he had just copied and pasted. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they they didn't just put an "it was so" there. Which, right? Honestly, this is this is one that breaks my heart because I I would love to dig more into that, but alas, we we have so much yeah big juicy goodness uh, way ahead in Exodus that I'm gonna I I still want this all that we've been talking about to sit in the background and we are going to pluck on some of that as we finish out yeah. day three. But, um, at this point, let's, let's take our, you know, kind of 10 steps back and look at like, just what are the, what are the basic elements? Like, yeah, if you were going to hyper simplify it to like, you know, what would the elements of creation be? And then how is God interacting with them? So what, what's like the first primary element God's interacting with? Uh, well, we have the, the dry ground appearing for the first time, mm -hmm. separated from the waters. Yes, separated from the waters, and and the dry ground is is second. the The waters come first. God, there's there's no mention oh. of dry ground at the beginning. God just gathers waters together, mm. and then yeah. So we have the waters. God's gathering them, and then we have, as you mentioned, the dry land. And how's the how's God interact with the dry land? He says, "Let it appear." Yeah, that's kind of a tricky one. Like, let it appear. Like, that's not. It doesn't really sound like God's doing anything to it. It's a little bit like the let there be light, except like on the level of like the Hebrew language, it uses the, uh, the passive form. So God's, uh, the word literally is let, uh, be seen. Basically the dry land should just be seen. And that's where we get the idea of appear. Like it just kind of pops into existence. Mm. Not the same as day one where God says like, put this here and it was here. Um, it's a little bit like that, but it, it, it does, it uses different language. And, and again, especially man, like that word for, for seeing Ra'az is, uh, very, uh, it pops up a lot <laughs> in the days of creation. And, uh, and as we talked about with, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the lamp, when God said, you know, make it the way you saw on the mountain, according to the pattern you saw, Seeing has a, a big role to play. Um, so that's kind of curious. But then let's dive into the second part. What are the what are the elements like God's second pass talking with his creation? So then we have the vegetation. And it does say let again. Mm -hmm. But the way it repeats itself makes it seem like, like there's total control going on here. Like this is this is how I'm going to say it. And it's going to do exactly what I said. Yeah. Again, like you said, we have the the ground and what is it supposed to, what is it doing? Produce vegetation specifically. Yes. Producing sprouting in the Hebrew. And, 
And I think what resolves the stuff we've been saying where it's like, it's kind of like before it does have that like very exact repetition, but it's not, you know, God speaking into the void and saying this thing exists. And, you know, all of a sudden it exists. There's more happening here. And I think the answer to this is we, for the first time have God letting creation kind of take part in its own creation. Like it's the dry land. It's the earth that is sprouting. Um, and the way God phrases it, it, it seems more, more partnership oriented, you know, like there's this, and and we shouldn't be surprised, you know, this is God trying to communicate his vision for all of creation. And so it's entirely, you know, makes sense for, for God to say like, no, I, I want to partner with all creation. In fact, I, I asked the land to bring forth this plant life. Um, I didn't have to do that myself with my own two hands, like the, the land brought that up. Um, so we have one other thing to consider here is the relationship between what God does with the waters and what God does with the dry land. Like, why did the waters have to be gathered? What's the, what's the purpose of, of that? Like, how are those two related? Yeah. And it almost... It almost seems like it would make more sense for God to manipulate the ground and the water is just going to flow down to whatever empty space is there anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's backwards that he's doing that to the water, which, you know, is also a good introduction to this God. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> she does things a little topsy turvy a lot of the time. And, uh, so we have that question. Here's the other big question with the previous days, you know, we mentioned that there's kind of two sections here. Other days don't have that. We noticed with the first two days that the separated things kind of grow into a cycle. They aren't, uh, they aren't like one's not eliminated. They're separated, but they're meant to exist kind of in this dance, but we don't really have that too much with the water and dry land. I mean, I mean, you could say the tides, but, um, that isn't, it's not really that, uh, interactive, you know, they don't, they don't really switch places. It's not a very dynamic relationship there. It's kind of a little bit black and white, you know, there's dry land, there's water and they're very, very different things. Um, however, where do we see the, the dance coming in? We see it with the plants because the dance is that the, well, all the, the, that detailed information God gave, which in the, you don't hear it as much in the English, in the Hebrew, it's very wordy sounding. Like it's, uh, it's a mouthful compared to the other days. God goes into a lot of detail. And as you mentioned, Brent repeats it over this detail of, you know, there are plants that bear seed. And then it goes into the other deal of detail of, uh, sometimes plants produce fruit that has its seed in it. Like it's very, specific in, in describing the process of, uh, plant reproduction and the, the creation basically of the first kind of, of life. And so the dance here that we see, and, and the reason why they had to, you know, like, like you said, like you could have done this a lot simpler. We could have compressed it. The reason that they drew this out, I think there's two reasons. First, we see that, you know, we have something not just new in creation with the dry land, God wants to do something totally new, like out of, 
Like, like apart from what happened before, we now have life. We now have a part of creation that can create itself. I mean, that's what procreation is, recreating yourself. And so I think that it does that to like bring up the issue of, of the relationship between water and land. I mean, obviously farmers would know that you, you got to water the crops in order for them to grow. So there's a little bit of a relationship there, but when those two things come together, they don't create anything like water or land. They create this, this plant life. That's this whole new thing. And it's, it's life giving in and of itself. And it's also life giving to us as humans. Um, so the, the dry land that's created is kind of in and of itself, not part of a cycle directly. Like the, it does, it's not like the water, the, the dirt doesn't shift around all that much, but the life that grows out of it, like we know now that, that the ground actually has a lot to do with the life cycle in terms of like things decaying and becoming dirt and then growing and creating life. Um, but you know, even back then without all that knowledge, you know, they weren't, they weren't dummies. They weren't idiots. They, they understood the world around them and thought about it. And they saw this dance happening through life of one generation of a plant growing up and then producing offspring. And then that continuing that cycle. That's the dance going on here. And what's interesting is that this is a dance not taking place like spatially, like the other days. Um, it's taking place over time. Although I guess day one is a little bit like that. But day two, definitely different from that. Yeah, I'm kind of keying in on this, uh, the various kinds thing. Because I was about to say like, oh, there's not there's not different kinds of land or, or water. Like that's simple. And it, it, it isn't quite that simple. Like... Sure. Yeah. For water, you definitely have the freshwater versus saltwater distinction. I mean, yes. And in fact, you can break it down a little further than that, but, but that, that's also the water we're kind of talking about here. He, he divided up into, into seas and land and he didn't, the water before was just the water below. Now that water below has been gathered and named Hmm. as seas. So I don't know if the, if there's, this is where, you know, you could go a couple different ways with how you interpret it. You could look at this as the way of demarcating like, oh, sometimes waters are gathered and that's the water that's like salt and stagnant and doesn't have this flowing uh, property that like freshwater rivers have or lakes that have a source and a mouth. Um, but, uh, you know, the... Uh, either way, like there's, there's definitely something really, really new happening here. Um, and we can see that in the structure, like something is being added. We have a a two part day. Yeah. Twice called good. Twice called good. Yes. Yes. And what was the first part of it that was called good? Uh, the gathering of the waters. Yes. But the, the, what, you know, actually let's go back to that. So the gathering of the waters, let's think about this visually like we did before right? Camera zooming in, you see water, it's somehow being gathered in whatever it's in. Um, and then all of a sudden what happens, Brent Billings? And then dry ground appears. And then dry ground appears. So if we want to jump now from dissecting it to thinking of it as a story and knowing the day we just came from talking about isolation and loneliness and how we, you know, connect what is God saying with this? I'm going to take all the water, gather it together, and then pop dry land. It's like a new. It's like a new character. It is like a new character. 
And it seems like God is intimating to me that when people are gathered together, kind of like the challenge we were left with in day two of, hey, God's created a door for you, the door of heaven. All you have to do is walk through it to be able to connect. And now God is suggesting when that happens a lot, when there's a lot of connection from love, then we get something totally different, something that's the opposite of water, dry ground. It just it just pops into existence. You get enough people together and boom, there's dry land. And the and God calls that good. Um, and what's so good about dry land compared to the water, especially if you're a uh, more ancient person? The land will produce something. Uh, we haven't got there yet in the day, though. You're jumping ahead. Think back further. Okay. Why do they do they like water or not? Uh, generally, no. Not in n- not in the large amounts of water sense. So, yeah, certainly not in the seas context that's being talked about in day three. Why don't they like it though? What's the reason? Do they just not like it. Oh my god, you freaking wet water! It's, I don't like that you're wet. It's the it's the abyss. It's the like things disappear into the water, never to be seen again. Yeah, exactly. You can't you can't live in the water. The water is where people drown and die. And yeah, like it, it's associated with death because it's you can't you can't live there. It's not stable. It's just pure chaos out on the water. Anything could happen to you. Um, so the first thing that I think God is is speaking with these uh, these images is that when People gather together in groups when these kind of connections, these bonds of love form en masse, you end up getting all of a sudden out of nowhere community, which when we think about community, you know, we, we, we technically like could look at it as just a, a, a quantitative extension of what we talked about last time of, of just connecting with people. Um, but the actual experience of community, like it, it's not the same as just having a friendship. Like it, it's, it's relational, but a community is a totally different animal than just a friendship. And one of the reasons why is because when you have that many people together, you get this kind of stability, especially like thinking in ancient terms, you know, if, if an accident happens and your barn catches fire and you lose all your crops, you know, you can't call up your one buddy and say, hey, do you have an entire year's worth of crops I can borrow? But if you have a whole community, they can do something about that. It does make your life way more stable and not as prone to uh, being flipped over by the capricious tides of the ocean. So community gives you dry land, and that's good. But then God ups the ante. Once you have this community... What does it start doing? You said it earlier. It starts producing. Life just starts growing out of it. And I would say a flourishing life because there's all these various kinds of things. All sorts of things that you would have never guessed or thought of, things that don't seem to be, you know, it's more than the sum of its parts. And and not only is it flourishing, but again, it's like it's flourishing over time. It, it recreates itself. It can come back to life even after, you know, it goes through the the four seasons and ends with the, the death of winter. Um, it can come back and it can come back uh, more than just what uh, died. Like, you know, a single plant gives off more than one seed. Usually, I mean, maybe there's some out there. I'm not a, a plant guy, but uh, right. 
like it it's it produces it grows like you said it's it's this image of total flourishing in every respect lots of different kinds of new life the the this kind of entirely new dimension of the dance that we talked about of, of actual living things things that can participate in their own creation yeah and that's that's what i was starting to like get into earlier with the various kinds of thing like yeah, there are different kinds of land. There's different types of soils and there's clays and there's, you know, oh, so there, yes, I there's see. a few different variations there. But in comparison to the vegetation, it is orders of magnitude. Yes. Different. Like there are just oh, man. so yeah. many, so many plants. Like it's just, it's just a whole new world when this dry ground appears. Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. You are, you are on the perfect wavelength for where we're going in Exodus. I, I love this. You've, you've, you've done well, Brent Billings. Okay. <laughs> awesome. So let's just summarize this one. So, um, we, we start the day with just a bunch of salty water, not, not good for much, a lot of chaos, but somehow when we gather it all together, when we, when we gather together as human beings who on our own, you know, maybe we're a bit salty. We don't exactly always have uh, what it takes to nourish other things and we're a little chaotic, but when we gather together, when we connect through love, we can create a community that brings first of all, stability and my goodness, I know in this age of loneliness, those two things in and of themselves are so huge, community and the, the stability that comes with that. But not only that, we're told that above and beyond that, that community then starts growing in various ways over, you know, broadly. It, it, it brings in new members. It continues over time. It produces so much fruit in different ways through these connections, more than you could, more than, you know, like you said, orders of magnitude, like more than can fit in your own head. Well, like even to this day, like there's no way we know every single plant species out there. That would be, that, that, it, even if we could, like it's a number bigger than what can fit in my head. You know, it is crazy to me when I see those stories of like discovering a new plant or discovering a new bug or yeah. whatever. It's like, how do we not know all of the species that are out there? But even <laughs> even with all the technology yep. and all of the the knowledge that we have, like we're still finding new things. Life is bigger than us. And, and that's really what community promises. Life that is bigger than us. That That's what it means for our communities to be more than the sum of their parts. That means the next generation is going to go further and it's going to, you know, um, it's going to change in different ways. It's going to bring a things that we never even thought needed to exist into existence. Um, that's kind of the, the, the image of this like flourishing variety. It's not just like, Oh, we're doing good now. It's like, Oh, not only are we doing good, but we're growing and changing on, on levels that we couldn't even, uh, conceive of. And, and I think that's like, it seems so immediately true when we think spiritually and in terms of like discipleship and the fact that like, you know, we, we've talked before about how in Jesus's time, like the goal of a disciple is to become just like their rabbi. But when we look at, you know, rabbinic traditions, we don't see a copy paste. <laughs> we see that those rabbis went on and did things that their old rabbis never would have thought of, couldn't have dreamed of. Um, it, it, it creates like that, that, that variety 
while at the same time, like that, that, um, preservation of what they were given. Like when you have a healthy community that, that does that, it's, it's very, very powerful, very, very powerful. So, oh man, I was trying to summarize and then look, here we are. I've gone <laughs> loquacious again. All right. So <laughs> God's gathering things together. When we gather together in community, that creates stability. And then out of that, we have this strange new kind of creation and life that we actually get to participate in, which is pretty cool. Now, with all that tenuously held in our minds, uh, are you ready to jump into uh, Exodus 27? I'm ready. All right. Let's do it. Build an altar of acacia wood three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece, and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes, and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar, so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings, so they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. Well, we get that little phrase there at the end again, as you were shown on the mountain. Well, Brent Billings, what do you, uh, anything jumping out to you with this, uh, this altar, which, yeah, I... The translation's weird. Uh, some will say copper or bronze or brass. It's uh, there's no way to really know a hundred percent for sure. But um, uh, I usually just call it bronze. Just that's the one that sticks in my head. Um, anything sticking out to you about this? Um, the word network is funny. Like I'm sure I've read this. Like I've definitely read this before. But for some reason, that word sticks out to me this time. Um, but I think what really sticks out is we've been we've been like scouring through images as we're making the presentations for these episodes. And I've seen some depictions of this altar and this is talking about being able to carry it. Mm -hmm. And the depictions that I've seen do not look like the kind of thing that you're carrying around. Yeah. A lot of the descriptions or a lot of the, the visual images are, I think based more on Solomon's temple, which was not a tabernacle, so it wasn't a movable tent. Um, and, uh, so, yeah. uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the reason for that. But, um, yeah. uh, or I, I assume would be the reason. Um, but yeah, this is, this is supposed to be carried. And the thing is it's, it, it doesn't weigh as much as you would probably think, like if you were looking at it, um, because, uh, you know, at the at the end there, it said that it was it was supposed to be made hollow, right? Right. And so, basically, if you're thinking to yourself like, "What? How is it hollow?" Basically, what it means is like, think about a cardboard box, and then you turn it upside down. That's what the bronze altar was. It was like kind of a a cap that you would put on top of um, a heap of earth and stones. Oh, I'm hearing day three all of a sudden. Oh. Stones that you would gather wherever you went. Uh-huh. You would have to gather it together into one place, and then you would pop down the uh, altar right on top of it. Which, this is also important, because later in the Torah, I'm not even sure if it's in here. I think it's in a different book. But um, it talks about there being a, a ramp up to the altar, which, you know, if it was 
you know, a cubit is like a foot and a half. So if it was three cubits high, that's like four and a half feet. Like if you're a priest, you wouldn't need a ramp to get up there and uh, tend to the food. So I work at a standing desk and I'm pretty sure my standing desk is three. What did you say? You said four and a half. I think my desk is three and a half feet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it would be pretty high. Like if it was at ground level, you would probably feel like you were like a kid again, standing at a table. Like it, it comes up like probably to under your shoulders a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it is supposed to evoke that idea of a, um, you know, a big table, which is a, a big, uh, big trope with the gods. The sacrifices are their food. Although obviously or that is, a. Uh, very much subverted here in the Torah. And that part, of, I, I think we're just going to go and uh, have to put this image in the presentation because uh, this will be the second time referencing it now. But this this <laughs> illustration of the giant altar, I mean, the altar itself, I think the altar is a little bit too big in the uh, length and width dimensions. Mm -hmm. um, but the height seems to be about right because the the people in this illustration like it is coming up about chest high. So I think the height is about right. And the altar itself is on top of this giant platform. And the platform is the part that's not there in the tabernacle version. It's only there later in Solomon's version. Yes, exactly. And, and honestly, I'm not a big expert on Solomon's stuff. I, my, my wheelhouse is Torah. Once you get outside of that, my eyes grow dimmer and dimmer. So that, <laughs> that may, the, there may be a platform in, uh, in Solomon's temple. He, he did like to go very big with his stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I can't say how accurate that is, uh, sure. biblically, but they're definitely, it, it probably, I'm not sure if it would have been that high up off the ground, but it probably would have been lifted up off the ground because the idea is that it sits on top of a big old pile of uh, rocks and dirt, which is, you know, what, like, you know, when Abraham makes an altar, they're talking about an altar made out of a big stack of rocks. So this is supposed to like be, you know, like that, except you have this bronze thing that you put over it. Right. Now... We've mentioned before the that kind of there's there's definitely a logic to the use of different metals throughout the uh, the Mishkan. Mm, yes, there's lots of disagreements about the bronze, copper, brass, like which way to translate it. Um, I'm sure there's lots of interesting stuff there. I don't know anything about it, but I think that there is some important symbolism there that we don't need to know the specific metal to to get. And the first is that this, uh, you know, all three of these metals are based on copper and they all have like a reddish kind of tint to them. And, uh, so I think that that is a big hint. It's, it's kind of a reddish metal, like an earthy sort of, exactly, exactly. It is a very earthy looking metal. Um, and not only that, the word for, uh, bronze is, the same as the word for serpent. It's a nechoshet and nechash. Those are the two words. Ah. Very interesting. And I think there's a reason for it. Um, when we get, uh, this will make more sense when we get into the subsequent chapters that talk more about the specifics of the altar. There's a lot that'll click there. But if we think about the altar, like, it's kind of the, this is the point where, you know, people actually gather around it. This is, this is outside of the tent. So your normal, regular old Israelites can come in here to worship and they'd be standing around this. 
And inside the tent, you know, everything's gold. Everything it's, it's just, is just devoted to God out here. It's a little more complicated, right? Like they're dealing with life that, uh, that has uh, a serpent added into the mix. They're dealing with life in the real world. You know, the, the people inside the tent, they're kind of, they kind of have their own little Eden in there. And this is kind of the, the real world where people, um, have wounds and come to be healed and come to be uh, reconciled to God and to their community. And so I think that there, there's some, some messaging there to, to remind us that this, what we're talking about here is about the real lives of real people. And, and, you know, um, I think there's a, probably for a lot of our listeners, there's a, uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction to see this as talking about sin specifically. And I don't think, I don't think that's right. Cause the, the bronze altar, it is used to take care of sin and stuff like that, but it's also used for like worship and stuff that has nothing to do with sin. And I think that the more appropriate way to frame it that includes that is, is to say that it is talking about our humanness in terms of like our, our, um, our limitations. You know, we are not finite, all knowing, all compassionate. Like we are just normal people. And that means that, yeah, like that does come with the sin territory, but it also, uh, encapsulates a lot of other aspects of human experience and how we relate to God. And I think that that's a more helpful way of looking at this. So God's kind of putting out this, this object, this altar to say like, you know, this is where you can be real with me, where you can approach her. And, uh, in, in a communal sense, you get to be at God's table, which in a more ancient culture, like that's, you, you don't get over invited over to someone's house. If you're not on good terms, you know, like that's a sign that the community is still intact between you two. Mm. Um, and also again, this is a big table. So I think that there might be, I'm not sure if this is would be accurate to how they would have seen it at the time. I don't want to guess too much about that, but I have to imagine when you have a, a table that that's that's that big, it um it kind of puts you in a more oh, like, like uh, it, it makes you feel like you're a kid again, you know, like you're. I, I know they had very uh, low tables a lot of the time, so maybe this wouldn't have been there for them. But when I think about it, it it puts me back in kind of that childlike state of like, Oh, I'm at someone else's table. And I think that maybe is what God's trying to uh, inculcate in us when we approach the altar, but that's just, that's a side thing. That might not be it. Okay. So I've worked at a church. I've also done a lot of wedding photography things. So I've been at a lot of like event type spaces and there's, there's a lot of stuff going on with round tables rectangular tables, six foot tables versus eight foot tables. Maybe the, maybe the, um, spacing standards are different, you know, thousands of years ago. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I think of a six foot table, you're going to have typically two people on each side and maybe one person on each end. And an eight foot table, you're going to have three on each side with one on each end. Mm. So this is seven and a half feet 
five cubits is apparently about seven and a half feet. So about an eight foot table. So about three people on each side of this, which means there is space for 12 people or 12 tribes mm-hmm. at this altar. That's interesting. I, I didn't even think about that. I huh. mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's really what they're going for. Because, like I said, that that's like a modern, that's my modern sensibility of how much spacing somebody <laughs> would need at a table. But if that's, if that's what it is, that's in, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think with all the, all the caveats you put on that, I think, yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a cool thought. Yeah. It works out to 12 rather nicely. I mean, practically you'd have the, you'd have one of the spaces is going to be uh one of the sides is going to be taken up with the, the ramp for the priest to walk up. But you know, I, I think, I think symbolically it's a, it's a cool way to think about it. Although with that illustration, like the, there's quite a bit of a landing at the top of the ramp portion. So I don't necessarily think that would, mm-hmm. you would probably leave that, that middle space on the, on the ramp side. Like that's where the Levite would walk up to and the other 11 would be in the other spots. But no, yeah, I, I like that idea. I, it like, it's, it's interesting on a lot of uh, dimensions. I mean, obviously the numbers work out, but I I also just, I want to say this for the people at home too, is that like, I, I always think it's important for us to engage with this stuff. And especially when we can, like, as long as we're separating between like knowing what's our context and understanding what might or might not be their context, I think we just run with it after that. So I, I don't think that's a wrong way to look at it, Brent. Like, like the rabbis, when they make midrash, they, they they don't sweat the the details. Like they they uh, they ignore the right details to make their cool midrash work. Well, they're they're sweating they're sweating one very particular detail and then ignoring the other. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. So yeah, I love that. I I think that's a really cool idea. Um, and and yeah, so I wanted to take this time to tell everyone out there like that's that's how we like to dig in. And I don't want anyone to be uh, shutting down their own creative impulses as we dig into the text. So that's the bronze altar. Um, Okay. Well then let's read the rest of this chapter and see if we can start figuring some more stuff out. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side shall be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall also be a hundred cubits long and is to have curtains with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases and with silver hooks and bands on the posts. Uh, This is feeling unnecessarily repetitious as is the second part of (laughs) day three of creation. Mm, The West, (laughs) the West end of the courtyard shall be 50 cubits wide and have curtains with 10 posts and 10 bases On the east end, toward the sunrise, the courtyard shall also be 50 cubits wide. Curtains 15 cubits long are to be on one side of the entrance with three posts and three bases, and curtains 15 cubits long are to be on the other side with three posts and three bases. For the entrance to the courtyard, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, with four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard shall be a hundred cubits long and 50 cubits wide with curtains of finely twisted linen, five cubits high and with bronze bases. 
all the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for it and those for the courtyard, are to be of bronze. So, in short, we're talking about the courtyard, kind of the um, the outer boundary of the, the tabernacle space. Um, like I mentioned before, this is where just your normal everyday people can come in. Um, and if we want to think about it using our day three lens, this is where the people would be gathering. So again, we have that repeated uh, uh, gathering motif. Right. But not only that, um, you know, we talked last episode about how the um, the pillars inside the tabernacle would have been like a analogy for the 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 cosmological idea of the, the pillars holding up the heavens where that big, uh, big old swimming pool of water is. Um, these would be the, uh, what they saw as the pillars of the earth, which, uh, under that is where Sheol is and where all the, the oceans, uh, that's why the oceans are the abyss because cosmologically, literally those oceans go all the way down to Sheol, um, into the, uh, the foundations of the earth and the, and the pillars that support it. So, um, again, like to go back to it, this, this dang Mishkan, it's, it's like, I keep using the example of a fractal, probably, um, not precisely accurate, but there is like, just everything is a miniature of everything else. This is a miniature of the entire cosmos as they understood it. Um, and we also like have so many other parallels here, but we have, um, in a sense, those boundaries outline what is dry land and um the the people are being gathered there so we have this idea of the waters being gathered and the dry land appearing which in this case would be like the the courtyard the entire space the area of the mishkan um now here's the other thing we have to think about um which is that why why did that chapter end or uh, that chunk of the chapter? We're not going to read the rest of this chapter because the, in my opinion, the, um, whoever decides the chapters made a big boo-boo. Uh, the last two verses or so of this chapter should belong in the next chunk. It's very clear in the Hebrew, but, but why did they, cause the, yeah, there's a big line break in the Hebrew. Um, why did they end where they ended? Like that is kind of such a weird place, like, like ending on, all the all the tools, all the implements, all the um, I think specifically it ended with the tent pegs, right? All the tent pegs have to be made of <laughs> bronze. Um, what? Why would we end on that? Like, why is that the ending note of this chunk? Is that like to emphasize the earth part of it, the dry ground part of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Like, it's reminding us that this whole space is. Um, yeah, is earthy. It is the foundation for, for everything else that's happening in the Mishkan. It's, it's where that community starts. Um, but yeah, if we think about, if we, if we again, jump back to our day three analogy, where the gathering of those lower waters, i.e. the people, which would happen in the courtyard creates dry ground. And that dry ground is being symbolized by the bronze, by that, that earthy color. I wonder if, um, I, I think what it's trying to say there with the way that it ends that is the tent itself, the, the holy place itself can only really stay in place when there is a community like tent pegs holding it down, 
Like without those tent pegs, it all just blows over. (laughs) Get a, get a windstorm and you know, that cover's gone. And then I don't know, you got a bunch of wooden posts probably still sticking around, but it's, uh, it's crucial to maintain that, that those smaller relationships that we talked about in day two, you need a strong community for those relationships to be able to stay strong. Well, and if we're thinking of the sea as uh, a place of chaos and a place that does not sustain life and dry ground being a place of stability that does accommodate life. uh, Yeah. Like you, like this, this tabernacle place, this place of relationship is, is what makes life sustainable. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, the other thing to consider here is like now, now if we bring all those kind of hanging threads from day three and plop them into this context, I think this actually answers some of our questions. So when we were talking about, um, the relationship between the waters and like why the dry land just appears. Like I kind of gave that surface explanation of it just saying like, yeah, like community just kind of spontaneously uh, uh, generates when you have a lot of people uh, uh, bonding together and, and doing life together, living together. Um, When that's, when that, those connections are formed by love, you get this community that is, that, gives stability at all, gives and, and produces life. What's really interesting to me here is that um, if we're looking in, in this chapter, obviously we have a, a couple places where gathering is mentioned and things that seem to indicate the dry land. But what is like the, the, the core thing that is like the most dry land of all the dry land images we have? Uh, well, the altar itself. The altar itself. And if we use that kind of day three logic of you gather, you gather those waters together, you gather those people together. And all of a sudden, boom, what appears the altar. Yeah. It's like the text is saying that the altar doesn't exist without the people gathered around it, which in a practical sense kind of makes sense. Like, you know, if if no one, you like, what's the point of an altar you don't use? I'm thinking of a parallel to um, the flood story, even where mm. as the waters recede, like the the ark rests on top of a mountain, mm-hmm. which the mountain is where, like, the mountain is where we meet God, mm. and like that's the first thing to appear. It's not the only, like there's more to it than that. There's more to the yeah. area, but that's where the community is gathered at that point. Everyone is on the ark. Yeah. That's a great point. I like that. Which obviously we've talked about the parallels between the flood story and the creation story. So, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a surprise that this, this, uh, story of the Mishkan paralleling creation is going to have some parallels to the flood story, but yeah, it's just, yeah, it's true. It's true. It, it makes sense, but man, yeah, I, I, my head was not thinking in that direction. That's great. I, the more, the more I thought about it, the more you talk, the more I liked it. That's great. I bet you could, you see, this is folks, this is why it's so hard to talk about this stuff. Cause <laughs> the, the closer you get to the, the, just the rock solid center of the Torah, the more it just connects to everything. Um, so yeah, someone out there should study that. You should study that, Brent. That's a great, that's a great insight. Um, that might really peel back some layers on the Noah story. Okay. Well, okay. So here's, here's another thought I have, uh, getting, getting tied, tying this specifically to the creation story, the idea of various kinds, like when we get to this mm-hmm. part of the tabernacle, uh, 
there's just so much stuff going on. There's so many numbers. There's a hundred, there's 50, there's 20, there's <laughs> yeah. 15, there's 10, there's five, there's four, there's three. Uh, did I miss any numbers? I don't know. Like there's, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's all these different colors of yarn. There's this linen, there's bronze and silver. There's, there's just all of these things like the, the various kinds of items needed for this part. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You, you can see the variety in that. Um, I think too, um, since you brought it up, what, one very important thing is like most of the, most of the, like, like, like the wall of the tabernacle, uh, is not like the, uh, or the boundary, I should say, is not like the kind of makeshift wall of the, the mission or the, uh, the, this, uh, tent of meeting, pardon me tent of meeting um those are like all kind of locked together it's a stable structure and this is more like they're posts separated and they have these um you know white linen hangings in between them mm. but what do we have at the entrance you mentioned it a second ago the the yarn and the the linen yeah we have that multicolored fabric again just like we have at the entrance to the tent and on the inside of the tent and approaching the holy of holies mm. it's the exact same design which i think again communicates that god is equally present um in fact there's some stuff we'll see in the next couple chapters about the altar that are very strange but keep yeah everyone out there keep uh keep your hands around this altar thing it's going to come back in a very important way Mm. um but now like thinking about going back to the courtyard itself i i think one of the aspects of uh of of the variety is just that like something maybe we're taking for granted is that what does the courtyard add to the mishkan well it adds it adds space for yes. more people to be involved more people exactly then that's that's super important um especially because you know we're talking about this relationship between this gathering of waters of of chaotic groups of people that are coming together in good faith to try and live life and community just kind of spontaneously combusting out of that and appearing. Um, remember, uh, like where, where else do we have new earth appearing in the Mishkan? There's a tricky one. I don't know. You got me. It's the inside of the altar, right? Cause they, they, pick up the top, the hollow part, the hollow thing that sits on top, like a little lid. And then they go to another place and they scoop up a different pile of rocks and dirt. Oh yeah. And if we think about it in terms of that, that day three logic, then it's like, Oh, what if we're not just talking about rocks being in the altar? If the people have to gather for the altar to, to exist, maybe they're talking about people being gathered to fill the the altar right the people that are on that different land that you're on and and like that was that's a huge thing you know you you said earlier like there's not that much variety in the earth which is true like on a scientific level but we have to remember too in, in those times like a lot of their god like they, they believed gods were attached to to the soil itself as we see clearly with um naaman's story right yep um so when you're going to different places and picking up different dirt, there is variety in that sense. Like you are in a, it is different dirt. It is, this is uh you know, Canaanite dirt. That is to them like 
essentially different than Egyptian dirt or Babylonian yeah. dirt. You know, like there's, right. there's different things. And, and, you know, we could, I don't think we should get too, um, uh, we, we shouldn't look at them as too silly for thinking that because we often express the same things with just like, you know, more scientifically accurate ways, like plate, different places have different, you know, vibes, um, different, uh, the history of a place you can sometimes feel it in these intangible, uh, uh, hard to pin down, uh, qualities, but it is very possible to, to, for, for a place to have character, but even more importantly than that, since everything in this in this Mishkan, from the the Ark to everything else, in fact, especially the Ark, everything is intended to move and to not stay in one location. It's it's funny. It's funny that you mentioned that about the dirt. I was actually thinking about this for some of the other elements. It's like, okay, so they are moving this. They've got all these tent pegs. Like, what happens if they bend one or break one or something? Mm. Like, they've got to replace it, right? And so I was thinking like, oh, this is like the ship of Theseus, only it's the tabernacle of Theseus. <laughs> but I, I think yes. it's actually, I think that's actually truer than I, like I was thinking of it more of as a joke, but that's really more like what it is. Like the elements of this, yeah. like the, the, the physical elements of this are changing all the time as they move it around. And funnily enough, they actually, um, after the rebellion of Korach, I'm not sure how familiar we are with that story, but a, a, um, rebellious group of Levites who wanted to be included in the priesthood took a bunch of bronze uh, incense burners and they were bringing an incense offering to God and they were all like wiped out and they took all those bronze uh, incense burners and they hammered them into the side of the bronze altar. So the, the composition of the bronze altar itself changed mm. over time. Yeah. It had this bronze added to it. And, um, you know, to me, that really tracks with, especially when we think about, like, how the ground does, like, absorb histories, and sometimes in a very literal way, um, there are bones down there. And and particularly since, you know, ancient people's burial was very important, um, and uh, uh, location of burial, and... Um, uh, and and also like how important genealogy was like the the past that sits in the ground was was not a inactive thing to them right so in a way god is saying like wherever you go gather up everything there like you uh you can put any old dirt in this in this altar yeah and like you know I, i'm trying to think of a way to like make that that resonate in our context where we don't care about the dirt that much well it is the gathering of the dirt but it's the gathering of the people that makes the tabernacle if this tabernacle like if you gathered all this dirt and you put up the tent and you put all the elements together but then nobody gathered inside of it what would be the point of all that work exactly um the thing though i want to stress though is that like the the people who are gathering there like yes they're going to change over time you know there's different generations that are going to come through and that's an important part of this but i think that the rocks and the altar are betraying a deeper truth um one that i think jesus hits on more um but i think we can see it here in this part of the torah especially because there is another it's not uh right here but elsewhere it is commanded that all the stones gathered for the altar can't be hewn they can't uh, the literal hebrew phrase is you can't raise a sword against them mm. you can't like cut them to fit 
better in your space. You just have to take all the rocks, all the dirt, exactly as, as it is. Take it as it is. That goes inside of God's altar, the altar where God interacts with the people, us. And that is, I think, where this kind of goes beyond just saying, like, this will be a fruitful community for for Israel, for this kind of stable, singular community. And taking that idea of variation and saying, no, that also includes the people everywhere you go. Those people should be involved, too. Like, not only should they be involved, they should be in the very center of the community, in the in the the thing that everyone's gathering around. That contains the place that you are. That contains the people you're around who may not actually be a part of your community, but it's it's challenging you to 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 think about if that's how it should be. Should those people be strangers to you? Should the uh the Samaritan be repulsive to you? Hmm. This is a tough question. And what's interesting is if the altar is the dry land, now we get to the second part of day two. What's going to come out of it? All this vegetation. All this vegetation. All these things bearing fruit, fruit bearing seed, the the rudiments of new life. And we could certainly see that in repentance. There's, um, there's a lot of uh, things that you do at the, the table that will bring uh help bring repentance help bring reconciliation between people um and also that are used for like celebratory and worship purposes and i think on a practical level we could all like say like yeah those all sound like fruitful things um but i think when we talk about new people being in the mix like that to me is where that takes on another you know, you talked about orders of magnitude before. That's what takes our growth away from just, oh, hey, I'm becoming a better person. I'm becoming more like Jesus. That's, you know, that's really good. I, I hope that for myself and for you and for all our listeners. But I think that when we're talking about this communal transformation, we're talking about something that goes way beyond that, way beyond just this linear track of a single, a single, you know, genus of vegetation uh, growing. I don't know. I don't know if genus is the right one. One of the smaller ones. I meant to say one of the smaller ones, a species. There you go. Yeah. That would be the smallest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're talking about like how these things work together. And like, you know, even if you just know a little bit about how plant life works, like you need an ecosystem that has all sorts of different kinds of plants. If you just have one kind of plant, that's, that's, it's gonna, it's going to make the dry land less, uh, less nourishing for that type of plant. Right. You need this, this new life. And so often our instinct is to do the opposite. Like our, our Hellenistic um, kind of background makes us yearn for that, you know, that, that, that Socratic ideal, that one, that one pure thing. And um, I think that really kind of cuts us off from the nourishing ground that we're, we're on. Um but uh, what's really cool, rather than just focusing on like how we might be failing at that, I think more importantly, this is God describing like how a community actually grows, not just by letting new people in. Because I, I mean, most communities are are more than happy to welcome new people, and everyone wants to to be growing in their numbers. However, how many of uh, uh, those communities around you when new people arrive 
do they have to be shaped? How, how often do those stones get cut to fit in? I mean, certainly, certainly at work, you know, that's a big place where community happens nowadays. Um, you definitely, uh, for the most part, you're going to have to get into the right shape. Maybe you're lucky and you're already the right shape, but most people have to get some little, little bits chipped off. Um, with, even with your family, sometimes, unfortunately, you, you, uh, you don't fit. And, and rather than the, the response when we're in these different groups, whether it's very intimate one, like family or, uh, our friend group or whatever, like when we, when we don't fit a lot of times, the response is either, you know, get into the right shape or, you know, we're, we're leaving that rock behind. And, um, I think what this is challenging us to do is to say like, no, the, the, the dry land needs those weird shape rocks. We, we need weird shape rocks under our altar. Um, we need that, that variety of plant life. We should be looking for that. We, we could, you know, we could be a cool tomato plant and get to the point where we're just producing the best tomatoes on the planet. They're so delicious. I, oh man, a nice heirloom tomato. I don't know about you, Brent Billings, <laughs> but I, those things are like candy for me. They're, they, the, the first time I had one, it was like, oh my goodness, this is a, this is, this is like a, a jewel of food. So perfect. Um, but I need more than that to live on, you know, like I need some, I need some bread. I need some, some wheat. I need some, some other veggies, you know? And I think oftentimes like we, we don't, we don't even see that that is what we're being invited into, let alone like a lot of times when we're faced with that, we get very worried. Oh, what happens when I bring a new thing into, especially if, if we're in a place where we're kind of incentivized to think in, in like in market terms of like, oh, are people going to stop liking my, my product? Is, is this product of community going to be less popular if we let certain people in and don't ask that they change how they dress or behave or things like that. Right. And like, you know, again, I want to stress, this isn't me saying, you know, there, there should be no boundaries at all. I think we talked about that last week, uh, in, in pretty healthy terms. Um, however, there's a difference between being like being safe and considerate and aware of, of people's like, uh, emotional, physical, uh, safety, spiritual safety. There's a difference between that and like, you know, having a, a, a gated community, if you know what I'm saying. Like the, those are, those are very different things, but it, uh, we, we don't know how to do anything but those two things. It feels like sometimes. Yeah. And there's all this life that God's promising comes out of it. That, that is not even something God himself has to initiate. It's something that is in the hands of our communities. Um, and when I say communities, I mean communities, not the leaders of those communities. We'll talk about them next week. That's where the leader conversation starts happening. Right here, we are talking about the whole community as a body in which every single part is uh, has, a, has a hand on the wheel. Um, that community benefits from having a diverse variety of, of types of people, and types of people coming just as they are, but more importantly, just the, the people that are around you, the people that, that you live around, uh, you should be seeing those kinds of people in your community. And 
if we don't, we have to question of whether we're actually on the dry ground or not, or whether we've like made this little island of, of, you know, maybe it's dry ground, but it's, it's, uh, it's not very nourishing. It's not flourishing anymore. Maybe it keeps us safe from the waters, but we should be seeing a lot more coming out of our community, according to what, what God's telling us in his text. But yeah, before I dive into this, let's remember where we ended last time about how like being conscious of, of where we draw boundaries, like how do we draw boundaries in a way that, that doesn't keep people out, but actually makes them feel, um, more welcomed, more at ease that, that actually gives them light and tell and, and communicates clearly that they are in God's house. Like, like, and the same thing is true here. You know, we have, we have the same curtain around the, the Mishkan space, the big courtyard. How do people you know, like we have to, we have to keep this train of thought going. How do people know that they are welcome as soon as they are in that space? How do we, how do we draw those spaces and or draw the boundaries around those spaces and organize them in a way that is meant for the people coming in, not for the people already in, for the people entering? To get more specific, let's think about the altar for a second. So where in your life, what kind of space do you or your community make in your worship whether, you know, like we talked about the altar is a center of worship, whether it's, you know, repentance, whether it's uh, like what we normally think of as worship, anything, any of those, I think all of those are included in worship. Where do you have space like that for raw community to slip in? Like people off the street. I'm not saying like literally, like how do you get people off the street to come in, but how do you get the people that you walk around all day? How do you get the people that you run into at the store? How do you make sure that those kinds of people are going to have a seat at that communal table and are actually going to be able to come in and not have to, you know, uh, uh, get their hair combed and, and, you know, make sure they're using good, uh, language and, and say amen at the right time and not, um, feel out of place. Like how can you make it, uh, someplace they actually want to be someplace they're actually drawn to where they can just show up as themselves. A lot of churches say this, but in terms of actually being a part of the community, like I, I've been to churches that are all about inviting in people just as they are to do life together and have felt really alone because they're, they're happy to see me, but you know, I, I don't get invited to the, the barbecue. I, you know, I don't, I hear about people hanging out, but I, I'm never included in that. Like mm. that, that happens. That happens in a lot of churches, even when there are so many people I know who put in a lot of effort, who really, really try to connect to churches. They volunteer, they get involved and just, it never clicks. And sometimes, you know, I think sometimes that that's, I'm not trying to pin this all on the church. You know, we, I know we, we, it isn't just the church. Um, a lot of it is the tradition that leads us to even like have churches the way we have them. It's, it's the culture around us. Like I talked about earlier, where it just kind of seeps into how we talk about community. Um, and how we conceptualize it, but also like it's, uh, it's something that, uh, you know, we have to actively think about that. Like 
when you're making the altar, you have to actually go out and grab those stones and be okay with the shape they are. Like that's, that's the part where it's like, how do you make it a part of your community, a genuine part of your community, part of the communal life that your community has. And at the same time, let those stones say the the dang shape they started in. Um, and I'm not to say, you know, God's not going to change us. Like, obviously, obviously, uh, she works in mysterious ways, but we aren't the ones who get to be doing the shaping of the stones. That's not our job. We are told hands off on that. And we have to have the faith to, to make good on that. Um, and that's something I would, I would really challenge people to, uh, to think about. Like, you know, if there is someone in your community who like listens to a type of music you don't like, or has a different cultural background or different political beliefs, like those things are only as important as you make them. Like if you make the point of it, just like, not just loving them, not just making them feel welcome, but actually letting their fruitfulness be a part of the community, treating them as if they could be fruitful members and letting them tell you what their fruit is. Because remember, we, we talked about in day three, things produce fruit after their own kind. You invite in a dandelion and you're an apple tree. You're not getting any apples out of them. I'm sorry. You're not. <laughs> Can you be okay with a beautiful little dandelion seeing those puffs float everywhere? Right. You know, you, you don't need to keep your floor clean of the dandelion puffs. Just let them get over everywhere. It's fine. So I think that's a really big challenge. And, you know, we've won't, that's only the first chunk that we've talked about here. Um, how do we get a more raw community where there's more people that are nothing like us um, and we not only spend time with them, but again, crucially, allow them to just be full community members that we esteem the same way that we that we uh, recognize fruit in in the same way, even if it doesn't look like ours. That's huge. Um, but we can't stop there because God wanted to talk about a lot more stuff. So the courtyard, this one's a little bit simpler, but I want us to think about like, how, how can we make a space that is actually just big enough? Um, and when I say big enough, I don't just mean like size wise. I mean like conceptually big, I guess. Maybe I don't know what I mean by that, but it'll make sense in a second. So I feel like if we just took what I was saying about the, the stones, it feels like that's a lot of pressure on you that you have to find these people. You have to, uh, make, a uh, make sure that the people that you're bringing in can like actually just be themselves and, uh, be accepted at the same time at the same level that you are. That feels like it's all on you and your community to actively do it. Right. I think what the courtyard invites and this, I'm going to dip into Leviticus a little bit. So in, uh, if you look at the, the, like the most basic offering, there's a lot of different offerings, but in the main, like uh, five or six, you have, um, a couple very simple categories. You have, uh, one that's just meant for like repentance and life change. That person shows up, their offering is completely burned up. They don't, no one eats anything out of it, not even the priests. Um, then we have offerings, uh, that are done out of 
uh, uh, the need to be reconciled with God. They're for unintentional sins. You can't bring a sacrifice for intentional sins, only unintentional ones, which, you know, we should understand. Um, I mean, first that might challenge a lot of people's understanding of what sin is, but it's in, it's in the text. It's in the Torah. Look it up. Um, but it's, it's for reconciliation of like harm that may have been caused without intention, without malice, um, but still nevertheless caused damage to your community, to other people around you. And so there's, there's reconciliation happening. Um, and those people, uh, I, oh man, um, I'm really showing my, my lack here. I, I forget if they get a chunk of the food to eat, but the priests definitely do. Um, and then there's this uh, other chunk, the like the the celebratory offerings, where um, a large portion of it um, goes to the the people who who brought the sacrifice. And um, usually it requires like bigger animals, like you can bring a bull or a goat or a, a sheep. And um, specifically with the the peace offering, you have like you're commanded to eat the whole thing in a day at most. The next day, you can't have any of it left over for the third day. If there's any left over on the third day, you have to just burn it. Um, now, I mean, I, I know not everyone has like seen how much meat comes off of an animal, even like a smaller one, like a goat or a sheep, but it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of meat, like a side of beef. If, if you're someone who, you know, had a really good year, like a really good year and you wanted to bring a an ox just to celebrate everything God had done for you. Like, I, I don't even know how many people that would feed. It's a lot. Yeah. Over the course of one or two days. Yeah, exactly. One or two days. Like, uh, you can't even like give it away after that. Like it all has to be eaten. And in my mind, I, I've never heard a rabbi teach us. So I don't know if there's other stuff I'm missing, but to me, it's like, man, on the one hand, we have people that are, that have messed up in some way and they walk away without anything to eat. And then you have this one guy or gal or family and they have more than enough and they're doing so good that they have enough to share. In fact, they need to share. They kind of need other people uh, to join in their celebration or they'll, they'll have wasted a bunch of food. Um, it seems like God is like nudging them toward a party, you know, toward, toward inviting all the people there to a feast. But why doesn't God just come out and say that, you know, right. All that to say, God wants us to, to initiate the feast, right? He wants it to be our idea. And so that's, what's happening in the courtyard. People are feasting. People are celebrating. You're having new spontaneous relationships being born. You don't know who's going to come in there, what tribe they're from, what profession they're from. They could be there for any reason. They're there to worship God. And you have a lot of food and they don't. And you got to get rid of your food. You say, hey, come on over. I have a plate. Welcome to the, the cookout. We got the, some really yummy beef, some delicious lamb. Come and eat. And to me, that's what the, well, that's the heart of the courtyard. It's, it's, this kind of spontaneous relationship, like an, it is big space where things happen and, and you didn't have to plan it. You know, you didn't have to, to force it to happen. You didn't have to manage it. It just happens. Where do we make space in our lives where things can happen outside of our control? 
I mean, a lot of us fight so that we'd never have any of that space in our life. Um, but how do you, how do you find that kind of space where things actually grow and it's not something that you did intentionally or, or, uh, had any direct hand in, you just, you just made a space and one guy had food and another guy didn't have food. Mm -hmm. Boom. Now you have a party. Now you have the beginning of a friendship. Now you have a relationship between two people who may have never met otherwise. And they might both be Israelites, but also like what happens when you get a Gentile convert in there? And he says, oh no, yeah, I'm from, I'm from down in Ethiopia and this is what my life's been like. And you talk the day away, just eating and drinking and enjoying the time together. That is, that is what this should look like. There needs to be space where you encounter people from all different kinds of earth, people that are, are from different places and actually have that. And, and, you know, if you walked away from what I said about the, the stones and felt like that's a heavy burden, it's not a heavy burden. It, it's, it's more about lifting the limitations we put on ourselves and on our community. What if we were just okay didn't sweat the small stuff. Right. And then just instead of being like, okay, now we have to, now we have to uh, schedule this all. So all these people meet each other in precise quantity. Like, no, no, no. What if we just created a space and people could just go in there? Like it, it doesn't have to be under our control. That's how we let the spirit do some things. Is when we let that growth happen just a little beyond our control. It doesn't have to be a, you know, a chaotic mess. It's still on dry ground. It's still inside the community. You know, if you come into the temple, everyone's clean. You know, there's, there's the, there are like safeguards in that sense of, of um, ways to make sure that people are meeting in a place of parity and on equal footing. That's why the stones thing is important. Cause if you have, if you have hierarchy and people, some people who are more important than others, then, then the, the party becomes, you know, about this guy's ego and he only invites his friends. If we don't have that, then we get really flourishing soil. Mm. Do you have a thought on that, Brent? Oh, I can see no. it in your eyes. Sometimes I, it's, it's just, I see uh, it it's developing. Just, it's beautiful. Just thinking about, uh, you know, these, these potential relationships. Yeah, it, it is really, really beautiful. And it, and it, it evokes, yeah, it evokes the, the same thoughts I have when, when I think about like just this spontaneously flourishing soil, it just keeps going on and on and on. So now I want to move to the the plant life part of this, the the dance of life, we could say, because there's there's a dance involving this space. You go to the altar one day to uh to do some repenting. You come again to to you know just acknowledge God's there in a tough time in your life. You come there another time to uh to celebrate. There's a dance that goes on there and there's there's a cycle in terms of like who you meet and what happens. And it's varied, just like we were talking about earlier, just as you've been focusing on Brent, it's, it's definitely varied and you never know what you're going to get. So if we, if you think of yourself as one of those plants in the garden, that's on dry ground, if you're one of those plants, how do you actually reproduce? How do you reproduce the way plants do? Because plants, they don't, you know, they don't raise their young. They don't um, keep track of them even. I mean, I don't know, maybe some plants do. There's a lot of crazy plants out there. However, how do you take that 
your your seed, the the life giving stuff that you have, and how do you just give it away? How do you just put it out there so that others can take it and grow? And it's not your plant. It's not it's not yours anymore. It doesn't belong to you. How can you take your life giving stuff and not put a brand on it? And you know, oh, make man. another one of those. No, no brand. No brand. I was thinking, well, you start a podcast, but if there's no brand, <laughs> then I guess. But see, that, here's the thing, Brent. What if? What if I told you? What if I told you that um, in in one town somewhere in the in the Ozarks, this guy listened to Baymon. He's like, "There's there. This this isn't going to work for my community." But these are good conversations, and. Uh, he started oh, yeah. a discussion group. Yep. And no one in that town knows the sound of Marty's voice. Yep. No one knows the sound of your voice. No one knows any of this. And uh, the, I've heard the stories that we've scattered. Yeah, exactly. It, it happens. It does happen. And that's, I think, the more beautiful thing. Because the thing is, you know, uh, brands have a have a lifespan. You know, they, they, the the when we again, this that's that's. Um, that's that depletes the soil. Well, and just to be clear, every, everything we're talking about comes from the seeds of the the voices before us. Exactly. That's and that's that is the truth of it. And so a brand is just like it can be a handy label, but when we start taking it seriously as an identity thing, that is when we start depleting the soil. When we look at it as just seed and we're like, yeah, we call this seed by this name, but Hey, guess what? Then a couple of years later, you notice a variant and it's, you know, it's a, it's an apple that's twice as tasty and Oh, wow. That's great. And we should probably give it a new name. <laughs> the name doesn't really matter. The fruit matters, right? right? It's the life part that matters. And so, uh, if you, if, if you're focusing on the brand, if you're focusing on the name, if you're focusing on the stuff you can control and things that redound to your benefit, you are never going to be producing seed that, that grows in this way God describes to, for it to grow that way and to create this replication of its own kind, to create this, this you know, breadth and variety and, and total flourishing you have to give it away like you're you're dropping it on the ground and you never go back and look at it again or i mean maybe you go back and look but you know what i'm saying like you yeah. you aren't you aren't you know trying to to cultivate a specific thing you aren't um you don't have an agenda you're just you're just dropping it on some soil that looks good or you're sending it into the wind or you're just dropping it down around you just the place god planted you those are all different ways that plants grow. There's a bajillion more, but that's that's what we're called to do. That's what we're told is where the most fruitful community is. And I like I know for a fact, like we we are we live in an age of loneliness. Like to be honest, the, the some of the hardest things about doing these episodes is how how much I feel like oh man, this is just so ahead of where we're at. And I think that's important for everyone listening to understand like these things do work in concert, but they're, they're also kind of in a sequence. Like if we don't, if we don't have that day one thing where we actually have real relationship with the world around us, none of this is possible. The same as if we don't, if we, if we don't have any relationships that are full of love and, and, ways that we can 
cross over. Like, uh, I mean, for example, like, you know, my last year and a half, you know, being in and out of the hospital and all sorts of stuff, I haven't been producing fruit. Like there are times where you just aren't able to do these things right? just because of the facts of life. And you don't need, you know, some, some fancy hot button thing like cancer for your life to be that crazy. Maybe you're like working multiple jobs as a single parent, like that, that puts you in the place where you should be being taken care of by a community that just isn't there. And that is, that is the tragedy of all this is like, not only do, does it look like when I look around the area that I've been planted, not only does it look like so many people are lacking, not just community, but those like fundamental relationships where, um, they can actually like give and receive, have healthy boundaries. It's like mutually nourishing. I feel like that is very rare to find, let alone a community where that's the prevailing relationship. And, and this goes even further than that. This is saying once you've got that, like, well, once you've got those things gathered together, then it can become solid ground and then it can become fruitful and do these things. So I want everyone to hear this and to know, like, this is aspirational. Like you may not be in a place where you have a lot of people that you can connect with deeply because of some of those differences. And especially if you're in the minority, uh, if you're a, a you know, if you're a liberal person living in a conservative area or vice versa, or, you know, there are so many things that can put you in a place where it's very hard to make deep, meaningful relationships where you're at. This isn't to say like, you, you should be, you should be able to do this no matter where you're at. You, you can only do this in the context of where you're at. And I hope that's what this is revealing that you have to use the stones from where you're at. Maybe your altar is just a couple inches high. You know, maybe it's the guy at the grocery store. <laughs> maybe it's uh maybe it's a barista that you talk to. Um, and if you don't have anything like that, like just look, you know, there, there's, there's something out there. Maybe it's small. Maybe it doesn't look like much or feel spiritually significant. But again, the, the key in all this is not magnitude. Like, remember the way God describes this life cycle, this, this dance of life in detail, God focuses on one thing after like creating after its own kind. It's not about how much it's about that, that quality. What kind is it? Is it this kind of living relationship or is it, is it not? Is it, is it dead and unfruitful? God can still work with those relationships, but in terms of where you grow and where you plant your seed, and where you build a community, you're looking for that kind of uh, relationship, that quality of relationship. And it can be very, very small. I've gone through periods of my life where it was so small, and I thought that was going to be forever. I don't know, maybe for some people it is. Um, I hope not. But even if it's just, even if it's just one person, even if it's just two people, even if it's just people that like you, you hang out with and they aren't interested in talking about Bible stuff, but you can be real with them and you can, you can find you, you like, you can find ways to talk about this stuff without, you know, using religious language. You can, you can just be real. You can just say like, Hey, this is what I'm struggling with. It's, it's pride. It doesn't have to be, you know, 
going into the details of your prayer life and stuff like that. Like, you know, you can just talk about the real stuff. And when you, when, when we're able as, as a, a larger community, a larger Christian community that is, you know, goes across nations across the globe. When we start doing this, uh, what a day that will be. I, I really long for that day. Um, but that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen unless we start with the basics and just gather together with people and take them as they are and, and look for fruit in that, look for what's fruitful in that and, and just trust that God will bring it all together over time. Oh, so much, so much good stuff, man. Just in the text alone, there's so many things to explore and then, Mm -hmm. And then to really step back and consider like, how is your community structured and how are you engaging the world around you? Mm -hmm. Man, seriously, so many, so many things um, to be thinking about. I love it. Yeah. Well, please. I hope everyone feasts. I hope everyone is able to feast on this. Indeed. Okay. Well, go to baymonestepshop.com. Check out the presentation. I think we're going to have at least a couple of illustrations in there. Get a get a picture of what this tabernacle setup is like, what this altar setup is like. Mm-hmm. Um, roll those roll those different pieces of text around and and see see what you find in the language and whatever else. Plenty of things to do. Um, so thanks for joining us on the Baywell Podcast this week. We will talk to you again soon. Josh has sacrificed himself on the altar of this episode. <laughs> Don't make me laugh, my spleen. Oh, seriously, dude. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. Laughing no, hurts no, no, a lot fine. for me right now, too. <laughs> oh, man. We're here suffering, and Marty's off, Marty's off uh, selling a book. What a guy. Yeah. <laughs>